Amen. And let's just show our appreciation for those fabulous children's ministry workers. All right. Woohoo. Well, good morning, everyone. And I uh, hope you have your Bible with you and you're able to open it now to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Uh, we've been taking a long, slow walk this, uh, this spring and summer through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, interesting, I had a, I was, as was mentioned, I was at Joy Bible Camp uh, this past week doing the teaching there. And so I had the opportunity to preach another uh, five messages from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I can tell you, it is a privilege to be able to, to wade through uh, this divine teaching. I think, uh, I think it would be fair to say that we as evangelicals have spent so much time over the last 40 years talking about the work of Christ that we maybe haven't spent enough time talking about the word of Christ. Because we're saved by that too. Uh, we're saved from living meaningless lives. We're saved from deception and deceit. In, in a world like ours, filled with so much nonsense, filled with so much deceit, filled with so much confusion, we need to hear a voice from heaven. Can you say amen to that? Amen. In our first week in this series, I shared a quote with John Stott, which I love. He says, the Sermon on the Mount has a unique fascination. It seems to present the quintessence of the teaching of Jesus. It makes goodness attractive. It shames our shabby performance. It engenders dreams of a better world. Isn't that good? I like that phrase, dreams of a better world. There is a better world out there. Do you know that? There is. And in this passage, Jesus tells us something that we need to understand if we are to enter into it. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7. As I said, I'm going to be reading now verses 7 to 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I'm sure you can tell for yourself, this passage is built around three overlapping commands or imperatives. Ask, seek, knock. They're all present, uh, active imperatives in the original Greek, which means they are things that we are to keep on doing. Jesus is saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And he's saying that if you do that, if you do, then finally you shall have, you shall find, and you shall enter. Few people are better at identifying and summarizing the main point of a Bible passage than Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says here, our Lord is simply at pains to emphasize one thing, and that is that we are to show persistence, perseverance, importunity. Now, importunity is a word we don't use anymore, and I think it's too bad because it's actually a good word. If you look it up in the dictionary, the definition is persistence especially to the point of annoyance. That's good, isn't it? I like that. I know some importune people. 
right? Jesus is saying we should be like that. Now, if you, uh, if you grew up in the KJV, the King James Version uh, era in the church, then, then you probably remember this word. You remember it from the parable of the importune person or the importune neighbor. Uh, you remember the story of the guy, uh, there was a guy, and Jesus told a parable, but a guy who uh, was late at night in bed with his, with his family, and a neighbor started knocking on the door because uh, he had had guests uh, arrive at his house late at night, and in the tradition of Eastern hospitality, it was his responsibility to provide a meal for his, his guests, some refreshment, uh, but he didn't have any supplies, and the stores were all closed. So he went to the neighbor's house, and he began banging on the door. And uh, in the story that Jesus tells, the neighbor hangs his head out the, at the window, and he says, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? It's late at night. I'm already in bed with my kids. Uh, come back tomorrow, and I'll give you what you need. And uh, the guy wouldn't give up. He kept banging on the door. And Jesus said, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, listen to this, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. So Jesus apparently gave this little teaching a couple times, and sometimes he illustrated it with that story. So that's importunity. It is persistence even to the point of annoyance. That's what Jesus is looking for here. Now, if we zoom out for a second and we look at the big, the big picture, take the big picture look at the Sermon on the Mount, we'll notice that at the end of chapter 6, uh, Jesus was talking about being singular with respect to your allegiance, your focus, and your ambition. Now here in chapter 7, he's talking about being dogged in your pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. Now if you throw in the first part of uh, chapter 7, which uh, Scott covered last week, he's telling us to do all of that without being harsh, censorious, or judgmental. That's a tall order, right? Be singular, be persistent, but don't be a jerk. (laughs) That's That's a tall order. That's next level. That's Jesus, again, raising the bar. Now, zooming back in here, we see Jesus is making one fairly straightforward point in this paragraph, and we're going to lean into that pretty aggressively today. He is saying that persistence in faith always pays off in the end. That's the principle. That's the, the main point of the paragraph. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking, and you will receive, you will find, you will eventually enter in. Now, as I said, that's a a tall order. Much in life can discourage us. Many times we feel like, what's the point, right? What's the point of this whole faith exercise? And so, thankfully, there's some encouragement embedded in this text that will hopefully motivate us and resource us to respond appropriately. Let me point those out to you. First of all, according to Jesus, and in line with all the teaching of the Scripture, it makes sense to persevere in faith, because while we may have to pass through many dangers, toils, and snares, the ultimate future is assured. If you have your Bible uh, in your hands, open in front of you there to Matthew 7, just flip to the left uh, until you hit leather, uh, and then go back a couple pages, right? And, and park yourself in the book of Genesis for a minute. Uh, let me walk you through some of the highlights. By and large, I would say this. You know, the, the Bible is set out, you could think of it as a library of books composed by many human authors, but one ultimate author, one spiritual author. That's the Bible, right? 
It's like a library. Many human authors have a role to play and, and, and have a hand in the composition, but ultimately, it's a library of books composed by a single spiritual author. And uh, the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation are like the bookends. Uh, they, they tell you pretty much everything you need to know you learn in Genesis. And then there's a whole you know, detour caused by the fall and a whole bunch of chaos and nonsense that happens. Then there's a story about how God brings things back to the way they should be. And at the end, in the other bookend, everything is just the way it began, only better. Right? That's it. Bookend. So actually, probably, you might, yeah, I suppose you might argue, that the most important books of the Bible for you to know are Genesis and Revelation because they tell you everything, pretty all the foundational truths about life, all that is ultimate and real. So look at the first verse in Genesis, Genesis 1.1. Boy, this verse can save you a lot of trouble. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's an entire worldview in that verse. Right, philosophers tell us that in order for anything to exist, something, which obviously it does, right? Here you are. Uh, so in order for anything to exist, something must have existed forever that has the power of life within itself. There are only two logical options, God or the universe itself. Every, every worldview lies on the other side of that foundational intersection. Turn to the left and you get a whole bunch of worldviews. Turn to the right and you get this worldview. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So according to the Bible, the world is not an accident. It has a creator. It has a Lord. It has a purpose. Someone's watching over that purpose. I saw a news story the other day that had a very alarming subtitle. It said, so here's the subtitle of the article. You know how articles have like a big title and then something underneath. If a star flying past our solar system moved Neptune's orbit by just 0.1%, it could eventually cause the other planets to smash into one another or get thrown out of the solar system entirely. Oh, dear. Uh, that's not good, right? Oh, uh. So uh, what they're saying is, you know, our solar system, is everything's kind of in balance. Woo! And um, uh, I, you remember that? This is terrible. But I, when I was in university, I used to watch The Simpsons a lot. But uh, so this will... This is only going to make sense to people roughly my age, but I can't resist. Do you remember uh, in The Simpsons, there's something wrong with Dr. Burns, so he goes to see Dr. Nick Riviera, and he finds out that he has every disease known to man, but they're all in perfect balance inside his body so that he's going to live forever in this stasis situation. But if even one of those diseases was cured, the whole thing would fall apart and he would die immediately. That's kind of what this article is saying about our universe, right? It's, it's, it's held in perfect balance, but if any large mass entity were, were to wander into our solar system, it would disrupt the perfect balance and everything would explode and life as we know it would come to a massive fiery end. Oh, dear. Now, if the universe were in fact a giant cosmic accident subject to random events like that, then I would be very worried indeed. But I'm not because it isn't. The Bible begins with the assurance that this universe has a creator and a Lord. That's really good to know. Now, drop your eyes down to verse 27 of Genesis 1. But as you do, as you're skipping over all those verses in between, just kind of skim them, notice them. 
It's saying, it's describing how God very carefully, very thoughtfully created this world specifically to support all life, but human life in particular. Now look at verse 27. So, God created man, that's human, they're not necessarily males. God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there we learn that human beings are special. They are related to God in a way that the other creatures, the other animals are not. They are royalty. They are ruling creatures, and God has plans for them. Also, good to know. So here's what we've learned so far. The world is good, humans are special, and God is sovereign overall. If you stopped reading the Bible right there, there's an awful lot that would be helpful to you. There's that, that, those three truths on their own ought to greatly reduce your anxiety about the future. Now, in addition to the basic logic that we have there, we have further assurances from God in Genesis 8, 21 to 22. So you probably just have to turn two or maybe three pages over to get there. Genesis 8, 21 to 22. After the flood, after the great catastrophe there, God says to Noah and his descendants, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You hearing that? God says right there in the Bible that he will never again permit an extinction-level event on the earth. And that as long as the human story continues, so too will the stability and flourishing of this planet. The seasons will come and go. Seed time will be followed by harvest. Day will be followed by night. Night will give way to day, and on and on and on it will go until the human story has been brought to conclusion. So relax. Relax, right? You, you, you don't need to be anxious about these things. The, the planet will exist until the human story has been brought to its ordained conclusion. I, uh, I was teaching at Joy Bible Camp this past week. As I mentioned, my, my main job was to teach in the five sort of morning chapel sessions. And, uh, and then uh, about midway through the week, they asked if I could spend some time with the staff um, early in the morning be- before program began. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. And I said, well, what would you like me to speak about? And they said, they'd like me to speak about the part of the Sermon on the Mount that deals with anxiety. I don't know if you know this, but anxiety is, is running rampant among our teenagers and adolescents. Did, did you know that? The percentage of even Christian kids who are just consumed with anxiety is, would, really, would really shock you. And so we talked about a few things, uh, this being one of them. We talked about the fact that we don't have to be anxious for the future of this planet. There are some things we can be anxious about. We don't have to be anxious for the future of this planet because of the promises of God. The problem is that most of our young people know far more about climate change politics than they do about the promises of God in Scripture. Now, listen, I'm not a climate change denier. I think, 
I think the climate is, is changing. I think there are probably a variety of factors that contribute to that. And I think uh, stewardship of the earth is an important conversation. And yet, the, the scriptures say that the, that the earth is going to continue as long as the human story continues. So at no point in our story does, does the earth give out from underneath us until the story's over. Do you know that there are a number of, of young people, a shocking percentage of young people, who say they're not planning to have kids because they don't think the planet will be around to support their kids. That's insane. Like, we make all kinds of predictions and scary, and, and here's something maybe you kids, young people should know. When, when I was a, a kid in high school, I read the book, um, The Population Bomb, by the way, did anybody else read that book in high school or university, The Population Bomb? Population Bomb was written, I think, in 1969, and it predicted that by the late 80s, early 90s, the population of the earth would, would have grown so much and uh, environmental devastation would have been so bad that we would all die in a, in a mass starvation, uh, you know, conservatively pegged at somewhere between 1989 and 1996. That did not happen. Uh, right? And, 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 and so, you know, maybe we should all just be cautious about these kinds of predictions. Maybe we, maybe we just need to put more stock in the promises of God. What, what the Bible says is that though there may be many changes, though there, though there may be many fluctuations, though there may be even, even disasters, until the humans... See, the Bible says that, that this planet, this earth, is nothing more than... Uh, its fundamental purpose, perhaps I should say, its fundamental purpose is to, to function as a stage for us to stand on while we relate to God. We're in a great chapter of, of redemptive history where God has made a way for, the, for all things to be restored, including human beings, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the invitation is going out. And Jesus said, remember, Jesus told us when the end would come. He said, and, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about some giant cosmic entity wandering into our solar system, disrupting the gravitational balance and and causing us all to be, you know, careening into the sun and and being vaporized. That's not going to happen. So chill out, right? Chill out. There, There are promises that we can build our lives upon. According to the Bible, the world is good, stable, and, and will support human life. Human beings are special and matter to God. And the Lord is watching over it all. If those things are true, you can go home this afternoon and have a nap. Things are going to be okay. So we learn, we learn that in, at the beginning of the Bible. And then we see all that brought to fruition, brought to restore, uh, restoration and renewal at the end of the Bible. So if you're at the left flap of your Bible, now flip all the way until you hit leather on the right side and back it up a page or two, three or four if you've got a concordance, right? Back it up. Park yourself at Revelation 21. Look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 21. I'll give you a second to find that. It's a lot of pages to wrestle through. Now as you get there, Right, as, as we wait for folks to find that, keep in mind what you're skipping over. You're skipping st- 
over a story about how an, a universe that was created in order and a people that were set in a, in, a, in a right relationship with God went astray, had had lots of troubles, but how God entered the story, brought about a way of restoration and renewal, okay, through Jesus Christ. And now here at the end, you're seeing the final outworking of that process. Look at verses one to four there of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what do we see there? We see the universe completely healed, renewed, and restored. We see everything the way it was supposed to be, everything the way it was meant to be. The curse and stain of sin has been removed. There's no more death. There's no more disease. There's no more mourning, no more dying, no more pain, no more tears for the former things have passed away. The in-between things, the time of sorrows, the valley of the shadow of death, it's all gone now. It's a memory And all that remains is us and God sharing and enjoying a good universe together, just as it was in the beginning. That's the future. And the future is already written. You're reading it right now. It isn't in jeopardy. It isn't in process. It isn't in doubt. Nothing about that picture is subject to alteration or change. That is the future. It is like the beginning, only better. It is every bad thing forgotten and every good thing restored. So, things really do work out in the end. That's the biblical worldview, right? That's why the Apostle Paul said things like, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Some of us don't like that verse because of how it is misused. It can be misused by people who've drunk too deeply from the prosperity gospel well, right? And they'll say, see, all things work together for good. So you're not going to get sick. You're not going to lose your job. Your your spouse isn't going to get cancer. Your kids aren't ever going to die in a car accident. Well, that is not what the apostle Paul is saying here. He doesn't say all things are going to go well for you. He says all things are going to work out well for you in the end, if you are called according to the purpose of God. He's saying here, pretty much what Jesus is saying here, if you pray, pursue, and persevere, then eventually everything will work out for the good in the end for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what Jesus is saying, and that's what the apostles believed. Certainly the apostle James believed that. He said, James 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Isn't that so carefully worded? So as to give hope, but not wrong hope. That, that is a, a passage that is worded like you would expect from someone who spent time with the author of the Sermon on the Mount. Notice what what James doesn't say. 
He doesn't use the word now anywhere in that paragraph. He doesn't use the word immediately. He doesn't say, if the elders pray for you and you receive that in faith, you will be healed now. You will be raised up immediately. No, he doesn't say that. He couldn't say that because he heard Jesus talking about perseverance. He heard Jesus preaching a long game, but he did know the future. He knew the end, so he knew the truth. And he's saying, you pray that prayer in faith and you will be healed. You will be raised up eventually, maybe tomorrow, maybe a month from now, maybe on the day that the Lord returns, but it will happen. He will take you by the hand, he will lift you up, and he will restore you to perfect health and peace. He will do it because everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks will eventually enter in to the eternal kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Persevering in faith makes perfect sense because the ultimate future is assured. And then secondly, persevering in faith makes perfect sense because the immediate present is a test. The apostles understood that as well. James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. According to James, life is like a journey that passes through various tests and trials. But that's a good thing. It's a really good thing because those are the very things that allow us to develop and strengthen faith. The idea of life as a testing journey lies, of course, at the very center of the book Pilgrim's Progress, written by the Baptist pastor John Bunyan. I've told you before, everybody should read uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right? Like there are two books everybody, every Christian should read in life. The Bible, obviously number one, and then Pilgrim's Progress, number two. I don't know if this is still the case, but for, for most of the history of the last 400 years, after the Bible, the most translated and read book has been Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, for example, when the pilgrims came over from Europe to North America uh, on, the, on, the, on the Mayflower, when they came over from Great Britain to here, uh, apparently there were only two books on the boat, uh, the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if that's true. You hear that all the time. Um, but certainly it was uh, in North America, uh, it, after the Bible, it was the most printed book. And as I said, I don't know if that's still true, uh, but it was true certainly until very recently. Uh, they used to say of Charles Spurgeon that uh, he, his most common source of illustration by far was from Pilgrim's Progress. Great book. Uh, so it's an allegory. It's a, it's a story about a journey that is meant to illustrate the Christian life. And uh, it, it's not a very like obtuse allegory where you're wondering, gee, I wonder what that represents. Uh, the main character is named Christian. And uh, he, you're creatively named, right? Not trying to keep in the peanut butter on the lowest shelf here, right? And uh, he's on a journey from the city of destruction toward the celestial city. And uh, on the way, he spends some time in a place called the House of Interpreter, which represents the church, particularly the ministry of the church, and explaining to people, and explaining particularly to new converts, the nature of life and faith. And while he's in the House of Interpreter, he has a series of visions 
each of which is supposed to sort of elucidate or illustrate how the Christian life and, and what, what the life of faith is really all about. One of those visions describes perfectly what we're talking about here. Bunyan tells the story this way. He says, Then the interpreter took Christian to a pleasant place with a beautiful, stately palace. Upon the upper balcony, several people clothed in gold walked. May we go in, Christian asked. The interpreter led him toward the door of the palace. A large group of men stood around the door, wanting to go in, but not having the courage to go further. Off to the side, a man sat at a table with a book and an inkwill, waiting to take the name of any who entered. In the doorway stood many armored men, resolved to hurt any who attempted to enter the palace. I don't know if you're seeing that behind me, are you? Oh, good. Pause it there. Actually, just go back. So uh, hard to visualize, and if you haven't read the story before, maybe you don't understand. So he sees in this vision a beautiful palace that represents the kingdom of God, right? Angels, beautiful people in gold garments are walking around. He knows what it is. And, uh, and then there, there's this little valley, and there's a, a doorway that, that leads into this castle, into this palace. And there's a bunch of people milling around, like, I want to go in. Do you want to go in? I want to go in. Uh, but there are armed guards at the gate that have been, that have been set there. And so it's a little bit nerve-wracking. Shall we go in? Shall we not? Finally, he says, a bold man approached the man at the table, the guy who was taking names, and says, write down my name, sir. With that, the bold man drew his sword, donned his helmet, and fiercely fought his way through the armed men at the door. Finally, he prevailed and entered the palace. Inside, a pleasant voice sang, come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. And the man was clothed in fine garments. I know the meaning of that, said Christian. I wonder if we do. Christian, in the story, the pilgrim, understood that the vision was saying that if we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we have to fight our way through many difficulties. We have to press through some trial and tribulation. He understood that as anyone ought to if they listened to the preaching of Jesus who said from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Jesus says ever since John the Baptist announced the kingdom of heaven, people have been drawing near and pressing through so as to enter it. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way this present hour was designed to be. Who do you think employs those armed men at the gate? The master of the castle. Their swords are real, but dull. They aim to hurt, not to kill. And their job is to deter all but people of persevering faith. They're there to test your desire and allegiance. Do you see that? I know what that means, Christian says. Again, I wonder if we do. John Bunyan, who wrote the story, the Baptist pastor who wrote that little allegory, said that the Christian life is a war. It is a war you may well bleed and die in, but it is a war you cannot lose as long as you soldier on. 
Now, why is that? Because fighting on is saving faith. That's what the apostles believed. That's what they said. For we have come to share in Christ, Hebrews 3.14, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see that? The immediate present is supposed to be hard. It is supposed to be difficult. It is supposed to feature confusion, opposition, and loss. There is supposed to be delay. These things aren't accidents. These things are design. Why? Because it is only in pressing through those sorts of things that faith is born, refined, and displayed. So keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking because that's what saving faith is. And then lastly, persevering in faith makes sense as well because God is altogether good, loving, and wise. So I always hesitate to share this little story. I won't say anything identifying. But I had a conversation last week. Uh, one of the great things about speaking at camp is you go up, you speak, and, uh, and then they gave us a little cabin by the lake there with a big porch. And so in the afternoon, after I did something with my kids, you know, went tubing or rock jumping or something like that, I'd sit on the porch and I'd read a book and, uh, and so that people could see me, and then they would stop by to talk. And so you ended up doing an hour or two of pastoral care every day as well. And one day I had a, I had a, a lady and her husband come to see me with their little ones, um, but their little ones were fabulous. They just, one little one just felt, this is not part of the story, but she fell face down asleep on the grass while we talked. I thought, that is a well-discipled child. <laughs> My goodness. Or you give her a lot of NyQuil. I don't know what you're doing there, but <laughs> blessings to you. Anyway, we talked for a couple hours, and she had come out of Catholicism, and, uh, and she said, you know, the reason I struggle to understand suffering in this life, because she had some suffering and some health challenges and whatnot, she said, I think the reason I struggle to understand health challenges is because the God of Catholicism is not good. He's weird and mysterious, and, and he does, it's almost like he's torturing us. She said, I think if I could believe that God is good, then, then I could understand the presence, the utility, and the ultimate blessing of suffering. That's kind of where we landed after two hours. And that's what Jesus says, too. That's where he lands. Look at verses 9 to 11. Hopefully you're back in Matthew 7 now. We've been all over the place. Come back. This is where Jesus lands. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's the ultimate grounding for this call to persevering faith. The fact that God is good. He is loving. He is kind and he is wise. He's our heavenly father. He, he's the goal of our earthly pilgrimage. We are on our way to the father's house. That's, that's the end goal of the gospel. Jesus talked about that. In John 14, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Hear this. There is so much anxiety in the world. What's, what's the answer to that? 
believe in who God is, believe in what God says about himself. Now, I'm not, I'm not over-applying here. I know there are certain types of anxiety that are organic in nature. I know that. But I also know there is an awful lot of anxiety in the world that is simply the result of not knowing who God is and not knowing what God has said. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house, that's where you're going. That's the world that is out there for us for all of us who are in Christ. Jesus is the forerunner. He goes first. He shows us the way. He makes a way. He clears away the adversaries, right? He knocks the sword out of the devil's hand. Now, he leaves some difficulties for us to overcome because, again, that's how faith is born and developed and sustained and matured. But he opens the way. He is the author and perfecter of our faith the forerunner and pioneer, some of your translations say. So he gets things ready, goes ahead. And Jesus said, and you know the way to where I'm going. You remember that way, of course. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So keep going, right? Jesus is the way, and the Father is the destination. I know you know, as evangelicals, we sometimes, as soon as the Trinity comes up, we just kind of, our eyes roll back in our head and we're like, we believe it, but we don't understand it, so please don't mention it, right? But some of these little distinctions are really encouraging and helpful. Jesus is the way. The Father is the destination. And the Spirit is our fuel and guide. So you are well-resourced. And the end is good because God is good. So keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and everything good will be given to you at the end of this journey. The Christian keeps going because, who, because of who is waiting for him or her at the end of the journey. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the child with the kind, gentle, and firm father does not fear to ask him for things, but deep down he enjoys the assurance that his father will not give him something which greater wisdom and experience assesses as not in the child's best interests. Isn't that good? There's such a liberty in prayer and in faith when we begin to assimilate that truth. We can ask for things, and we can trust that because God is good, he will give us what we've asked for, or he will give us what we ought to have asked for and what we would have asked for if we understood things as he does. But he'll always answer. Now, the answer might, might be yes. It might be yes now. It might be yes later. Or it might be no. Again, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. And he is wise, and he knows things we don't. And so he gives us that which is ultimately better. But he does always hear. He does always love. And he is always good. So we pray on. We keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking because in the end, we believe that we will see the Father. That is faith, that is hope, and that is glory. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the truths of your word. How thankful we are for that which you have revealed specifically and uniquely in the person, the work, the teaching, and the example of Jesus Christ. We are thankful. We are well-loved. We are well-resourced. And by your Spirit, we are well-led. And we ask that you would see us all the way safely home in the end. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.